Welcome to this Knowledge Natter by RCBS Knowledge. Here we have friendly and informal discussions with our Knowledge Award champions and those who are empowered by quality improvement in their work. Whether you're a veterinary surgeon, veterinary nurse, receptionist or member of management, quality improvement will and can positively impact your everyday life. Listen and be inspired. Hi everyone and welcome to this Knowledge Natter. I'm Pam Mosdale, I'm QI Clinical Lead at RCVS Knowledge, and I'm delighted to be speaking with some of our brilliant 2021 RCVS Knowledge Award winners. Today, I'm talking to the team from University of Nottingham. This champion team won a Knowledge Award for integrating QI and EBVM into the curriculum for both undergraduate and postgraduate students. They do this in a novel way, which has been informed by a research-led agenda focused on the application of quality improvement and evidence-based medicine into veterinary clinical practice. Embedding QI in the curriculum is a comprehensive way and an important introduction for students to see the benefit that QI can bring to their future careers. The leader of the team is Marnie. Marnie, could you introduce us to your team from University of Nottingham School of Veterinary Medicine? Absolutely, sure. So thanks very much, Pam, for, for talking to us today. My name's Marnie Brennan, and uh, I'm a, a lecturer in epidemiology here at the Vet School, and I'm also director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine. So I'm a practitioner by background um, who somehow found herself in research and teaching. Um, and we've got uh, three other team members with us today. Kate, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hello, everybody. My name's Kate White. I'm Professor of Anesthesia and Analgesia and the Clinical Director at the School of Veterinary Medicine. Um, I'm a veterinary anaesthesia specialist and early on in my specialist training, I, I realised the significance of non-technical skills and, and QI in, in my work in influencing patient outcomes, for example, um, the team dynamics in theatre and the whole functioning of everybody. And I was certainly involved in um, the development of anaesthesia checklists and disseminating those through the Association of Veterinary Anaesthetists. And then when I returned to, um, to academia, I realised that I was very keen on not only teaching content, but also teaching things like patient safety, error, the systems and the communication as well to the undergraduates. I'm going to hand over now to Emma, who's another one of my colleagues. Um, hello, everybody. My name's Emma Drinkall. Um, I am an assistant professor here at the University of Nottingham um, and I am the module convener so I sort of oversee the logistics of a module called veterinary professional skills for our year, was year four, now year three students where we see some of the QI elements really being um, overtly put in, in rather than being hidden curriculum overtly put in their teaching um, but full full confession I am a Nottingham alumni so I was moulded by Kate and Marnie. Um, so I was part of the early cohorts that came through Nottingham. I was in the first couple of cohorts. So I was present at the beginning when there was this early element of, of QI in my own training, um, which has followed me post-graduation into clinical work as a mixed vet and a small animal vet, who, as Marnie said, has ended up and found themselves in a, a position enjoying research and hugely education. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Emma. Um, we won't hold it against you that you, you were an undergraduate with us here. Absolutely not. Um, Julie, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi. Yeah, sure. Um, so my start was um, slightly different in that I was um, or am a clinical, clinically practicing vet um, and was for 
15 16 years in first opinion practice um before um I'll use Emma's words being taken un taken under the, under the wing by Marnie and Kate um, <laughs> at the University of Nottingham and I'm now doing a PhD and I'm exploring the concept of um, just culture in the veterinary profession um, which is something that we'll perhaps come back to a little bit later on in our discussions. Thank you, great. Um, Marnie, I know that you've been at the forefront of evidence-based veterinary medicine at Nottingham for quite a while with the uh, with your wonderful Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine. And I know that uh, right back in the early days of the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine postgraduate course, I was one of the people who was involved in with you then. But when did you get um, interested in actually um, putting quality improvement into the undergraduate curriculum? Yeah, no, that's a really good question, Pam. And I suppose um, we're thinking about it as... A as you know as altruistically as we can I would I'd, I would argue we probably have had things there from day one really um, you know we've always had communication and the importance of that both from a client perspective but also within the practice setting as as kind of one of our big things and and something that's been embedded in the course from the start so kind of informally and formally and I guess that's one of the advantages of setting up a course from scratch, yeah, um, we're able to kind of look at the overview of it and say, what what is it that we actually really want here? Um, and I guess we could argue that that's also kind of we managed to embed it and and have it in lots of different places across the curriculum um, because of this kind of. Um, I guess we've got a fairly good culture within the vet school here in terms of communicating with each other about what's going on, and I guess having a real appreciation for what's going on across the curriculum as well. Um, so making sure we're, you know, making it as best as we, we can be and, and as fit for purpose as possible. But then also, you know, going through this process of constantly improving it as well, making sure that um, we're, we're keeping up to date with with what's current and what's going on out there. And I think it's also, um, you know, a lot of the QI that we have in, in the teaching has come as a result of the research we've done, too. So postgraduate research. Um, you know, I think that's really important because obviously the research that's going on is the most current and up to date thinking of anything, any topic. So really fortunate that we've had some great PhD students over the years being able to, you know, come out with some really interesting findings and, and really useful things for practitioners that, that we can embed into our teaching and, and use that moving forward. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of infiltrated everything. And, and I guess we've had it in our minds, minds from the start, really, I would say. And you certainly are at the forefront with your um, your all your QI research. Um, but I was really interested looking at the undergraduate course that these things are um, covered right from the beginning. Is that right? Absolutely. So um, if you have a look at our undergraduate course, and and I suppose this is um, maybe one of the reasons that, that we were successful with with this award is is because we we've tried to put it across across everything. Um, Again, I don't know whether it's worth at this point talking about how our course is structured a little bit. Um, yep. So we have a five year curriculum, um, which is broadly split into two parts. There's two degrees. There's the Bachelor's of Veterinary Medicine and Science and then the Bachelor's of Veterinary Medicine and Surgery. So the first three years is that first degree, the, which is sort of preclinical. And then the second two years make up that more clinical part of the degree. And all the way through each year there is a consistent module described as veterinary professional skills and um, so that's present from day one year one right the way through to, to graduation 
But then around those, we have essentially systems based teaching that we deliver to students. And so QI and its integration into the curriculum, it has those places, as I'd said, in, in veterinary professional skills where it, it's really at the forefront, perhaps, and very clearly signposted. But it's also present within several of, you know, mo most of our other modules, really, actually, it's drip fed all the way through. Um, so they're learning things like communication skills um, evidence based medicine. So they're learning about appraisal of sources um, as early as year one and year two. They're doing research projects which are informing them on, you know, critique of study design, evidence synthesis, things like that. And then really, we're kind of building that background all the way through really years one to four um, and then they'll come to year five which is really Kate's arena. Yeah so um, the final year is obviously lecture free and our students rotate through um, community-based rotations so it's workplace-based learning we call it and they are based in these practices and there's a very strong emphasis on a lot of the QI skills and tools that they've acquired earlier in the course particularly in the in the professionalism modules embedded in these um, in these rotations in the final year. So we like to think that, you know, we've got that continuity right through the curriculum and that they can start to put it into practice in the final year. In saying that, I, I strongly believe and I, I, I feel I have got some evidence for this, that they need to experience being a vet before they can really understand how important QI is. So we can teach it and we can give them a framework, but they've got to have a degree of experiential learning to really realise how important it is, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. I think you're absolutely right, Kate. That, um, and that can be a problem, I think, with getting students to engage with, with something like QI. How do you try and address that problem? I feel we Emma's phrase of drip feeding them. I think we've drip fed them for five years. So I think there's no escaping from it. Um, I think that really is our superpower, I suppose, for embedding it right through the curriculum. They can't dodge it. So um, hopefully some of it has gone in. And they'll have the resources then, won't they? When, when they're out in practice and find something goes wrong or, or whatever they'll have those resources available to fall back on that's the important thing I think you know looking back on my time as a student which to be fair was a little while ago now um, for me certainly there was role modeling as well you know those clinicians and staff members all across the course were were demonstrating the value of it um, the importance to them and I respected them and, and, and wanted to emulate them so therefore it, you know it, it became part of what I wanted to, to be as a vet um so I, I do think there's an element where you know I can remember certainly going out on final year rotations and seeing University of Nottingham staff clinical associate staff and and beyond into extramural studies actually as well seeing clinicians that were that were modeling this and thinking that's I need to keep hold of that Absolutely. And, and your students seeing it as part of the normal day of clinicians working, not as a separate subject, but as part of a normal vet's day. Yes. And in the module that um, I lead for the, for the fourth slash third years, they see it as part of their understanding of how a practice works. So we're delivering teaching around how does a practice operate? So looking at it as a business. Um, and I think when you're saying about the challenges um, of, of student engagement or, or understanding, it's a little bit sort of part and parcel of that module. So sometimes, you know, they've, they've come to vet school, they don't want to learn about 
business management or, or the operation of a practice. They want to be able to put catheters in and, and that kind of element. Um, but by giving them really active tasks and getting them to go through things like, okay, when would an audit be useful to you as a new graduate? You know, what tools are out there to support you? And building a story really around it often I've found has been helpful. So an example would be of, of, of evolution. Um, those stories historically have been, they're the boss running a practice and they're going to run a clinical audit with their team and they write it and present it and they can actually, it's part of their formative assessment in the curriculum. Um, as we evolve that through the new sort of context I'm giving it is integrating it with practical skills. So uh, the current third years will look at a session where it will be integrated with um, aseptic technique scrubbing. Um, and that will be linked to a story around uh, post, you know, patients' post-surgical outcomes. And so they'll really see the process of clinical audit and how an audit is structured and delivered. But also they'll have a, that, that story of, you know, this could well have been something that's seen in, in many practices around the place. I was also thinking that it's, it's, it's also the kind of wider skills as well in terms of things like management and leadership too, which fit really nicely with you know the a lot of the business chat that goes on in in you know later on in the course but also we're coming at qi from lots of different perspectives aren't we from you you as a, a new grad in a practice maybe you as that practice owner maybe you as a manager of that practice so i think by having a look at it in lots of different spectrums i think it again makes the point that this stuff's important it doesn't matter what you do and what position you hold in that practice Absolutely. And throughout your career, you can use QI and you might use it in different ways at different times. But yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. And how do the students enjoy this? Do you get good feedback from them about their QI sessions? Yes, um, I think uh, like it was Emma, I think, um, said they're very interested in, in content. They want to learn about diseases and diagnosis and practical skills. So sometimes they don't rank the QI as highly as they rank learning about a disease and how to perform a surgical procedure. So it's sometimes difficult to get really good feedback about the QI aspects of it because in their minds it's not as important. But I think the penny does drop towards the end of fifth year, the final year, they realise actually it's probably more important than anything because nowadays we have so much knowledge, so much so it's exceeded our capacity to retain it. And in a way, we should be teaching that you can look most things up, but the QI should probably be more important than anything. Because if you've got that framework, you can go and look anything up and your outcome will be then superior. So I think it's trying to get that across to them. But again, there is a degree of them having to go out and experience the real world before the penny drops. Absolutely. And I think um, for the profession generally, it's been that QI has been perceived as, as less exciting than, than clinic or CPD. Um, but as you say, it's just so important. Julia, I, I was really we... interested in your, um, in your PhD. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, I, I'm doing my PhD exploring just culture in the veterinary profession and um, just listening to everyone else's discussions here. Um, I think I'm kind of, I, I probably represent a large proportion of the profession. Maybe not, maybe, maybe, I'm, my, maybe I'm a bit of a dinosaur now, but in that I was in practice for a very long time and it took me that time to really see the relevance of the quality improvement aspects of what we do. 
but it was those kind of personal experiences and things that I witnessed in practice that really drove me to start the PhD in the first place. So I think that really highlights how important it is that students are being taught it now. I think um, quality improvement can have a positive effect on practice culture when people are um, listen to their team, um, um, find out what they what the issues are, and, and are open to measuring things. Um, so what, what do you think, Julie? Yeah, I, I think it's. I think absolutely, you're right, Pam. But I think sometimes we think of it as a bit of a unidirectional thing, and these concepts is very separate. We talk about them, um, you know, just culture. We talk about QI, and we kind of quite good at labeling things, which is necessary, but. They are absolutely interlinked and it's so important that the process element is there to nurture that culture but actually also it's, it's important for the right culture to be there so that those processes are um, taken up and people really engage with them so that that learning can happen so that they're absolutely it's, it's really complex isn't it how those things kind of link together it's kind of that human element comes into it a bit doesn't it you know that that yes we have to do all these things at very kind of maybe formalized structured level but actually at the end of the day it's about communicating with each other and 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 talking to each other and understanding different people's perspectives and what what impact that's going to have on the cases and um maybe even in the outcome for those cases so yeah it's it's all of that together isn't it and and i think that's where um the students um and some other people can correct me if i'm wrong because you've got much more experience of teaching the students than i have but where that engagement can really come when they realize that it does actually um impact them when things go wrong and so having those processes in place where it helps them to deal with that um and and move on is the wrong word but get something positive out of it or make it a less um, negative experience is, is really important so that that can help them to engage with it they, they sort of um, understand that concept a bit more I'd agree with that Julie I think we I don't know if Kate has, has seen the same but I've seen a lot of uh, clinical year reflective portfolios where the students have free choice over the description and, and analysis of an experience and that's where I think I see I might you know, talk about audit cycling year three or year four, but actually it's, as Kate says, there's that experiential element that they're starting to get through their rotation year. And then you see that, that engagement, um, you know, we're not, you're not forcing them to write an, a reflective essay on their experience of QI, but they're, they're voluntarily coming out with it quite frequently in, in the portfolios I read and see. That's really encouraging. And Kate, you mentioned non-technical skills. Um, and is that how how do you try and get um, your students involved in those because again that's something that they're going to appreciate more once they're qualified yes um, it's a difficult topic to address although I feel as an anaesthetist um, I've got a little bit of an advantage because there's lots of scenarios where we can embed it in a um, a role play or embed it in some teaching and demonstrate it quite easily so it sits nicely with the anaesthesia and analgesia teaching and certainly communication skills hierarchy mistakes calling out errors it's all possible in the sort of perioperative time so we often um, teach it around scenarios in the theatre so that that works really well. We're also trying uh, to encourage the students to embrace uncertainty because there's quite a lot of QI 
that links in nicely with that and trying to get them away from just wanting a single right answer about everything. And again, developing flexibility through their final year rotations. Um, we push embracing uncertainty, you know, quite a lot. And we also like them to think about always looking for difficult situations to try and reflect on, to practice their non-technical skills around. So there's lots of opportunities, but it, it is this constant need to try and encourage them to embrace QI aspects rather than just focusing on content and clinical skills, which is what they ultimately love and they thought they were coming to vet school to do. <laughs> yes, but they'll find out how important the rest of it is. <laughs> but certainly we've all had to um, certainly... Uh, embrace uncertainty haven't we in the last couple of years how has it changed from when you started to to embed QI into the curriculum um going forward has, has anything changed yeah I mean I think it has it has absolutely um I think you know maybe a little bit in terms of what we've decided to put into the course but then also more about how the teaching happens and kind of almost the depth to which you go with it as well yeah I, I think and that comes with experience you know understanding that even for all of us you know the process of um, teaching this there is an education of us at the same time you know of our team who, who are, are teaching this um, in terms of not only just more information about QI you know there's more research that's been happening in QI so we're all learning at the same time but then also Kind of really understanding the best way to communicate this to to our undergraduate students um, and postgraduates too really so as, as Emma said it's not only about going this is your being taught QI now it's also about doing QI but as part of other activities where it's just there and it's happening all the time so understanding that that's a really important way of, of making it happen so it's more around how but Again, Emma's just done quite a lot of rethinking for the new um, third year module, actually, too, haven't you, in terms of the teaching, along with our dual cohort change, actually, with the way that we're doing our, our curriculum now. Yeah, um, well, I mean, it, it's always part of, of the process that there, you know, there's constant curriculum review and evaluation. Um, with the dual intake, I just had a bit more opportunity, I think, in this present review. Um so what happened was um, my fourth year module that I used to, to, to lead was um, really about practice management and focused around business skills. Um, the module that we've been reviewing and looking at more recently for the third year students is a longer module, a bigger module. It's, it's five weeks with students. Um, and what we did was we took those weeks and and divided them into themes so for example the first week is all about consultation and communication skills um, the second week is about compassion for your patients your clients yourself and your teammates and um, so on through to careers and business skills um, and then ultimately they finish with a consolidation week kind of bringing it all together and I'd mentioned that we have for example the uh, you know we're, we're giving them um, the idea of let's practice doing scrubbing because we know that we like doing clinically clear and linked skills but using that as a way of giving context and value to that process of understanding why a practice might be doing a clinical audit how it might reveal something how they how it can empower them but throughout that we do you know having as I say come from the Nottingham system we're doing things as well where it's a little bit more hidden and um, so for example the students are working in a team so they're going to 
develop leadership they're going to develop teamwork and they're going to develop their communication skills with their peers um and in some elements we've given them sessions where that's guided defining roles and responsibilities and then in other sessions um i'm very glad to have kate coming in to help with uh, helping them with a session which we've described as team working under pressure yeah so what we're aiming to do pam is uh, we we've already taught them the sort of the nuts and bolts for example of uh cpr using the recover guidelines and then what we're doing is we're putting this into practice and we allow them to try and do some um, simulated CPR sessions without any real structure and framework. And then we build it up over a morning where we actually do start addressing assigning roles, communication, hierarchy, feedback loops and how we communicate within the team. And by the end of the morning, the difference it has made in how they undertake a CPR scenario, it, it's mind blowing. And I think they can't believe how much better they are by the end of the morning. So it, it is quite a structured way of doing it. And I think it works really well around CPR because that is a high stress scenario that they are all worried about. And without, I mean, almost all of them have seen something on EMS where it has gone wrong. And so it, it's an ideal opportunity to, to train them in all these aspects in, in, a, in a very sort of controlled environment. I think simulation is a really useful way to teach, isn't it? Do you have any other areas where you use that? We do quite a lot of checklist simulations um, and our biggest challenge there is getting everybody on board to do it and trying to educate them around. The buy-in is the biggest stumbling block that we find and how to get people who don't want to use a checklist to buy in. Um, that's certainly quite a good scenario that, uh, that they're quite amused doing when I'm the sort of uh, reticent surgeon who doesn't want to use the checklist. That's really good practice for being out in practice, isn't it? Because not everybody's going to suddenly take these things on board. Yeah, and they get their communication simulations as well. So they, they're doing communication simulations from year two into year three and, and then through to year four and year five. Um, and we do have more simulation ideas coming. So... We've got things coming down the pipe, which hopefully we might be able to share shortly. Oh, sounds exciting. <laughs> I think it's reasonable for students going into their um, interviews for their first roles to actually ask practices if they do these kind of things, if they have practice meetings, how they communicate. What, what are your opinions on that? We, we've had discussions before about um, how actually in terms of, of jobs and, and being in positions in practices, um, actually, it's it's changed how you've thought about that practice, um, you know, in terms of whether they engage with some of these processes or not at, again, different levels. Um, so I, I, I don't see why it's not something you can't talk about in an interview. If it's something that you're going to be actively looking for in a practice, then why not? Yeah, we teach them about finding that fit. You know, it's a two way process. It's both sides looking to find that team member that, that fits in with them with and so we do actively um, get students to to try and establish at their current state, you know, what are their personal values? Um, and then we do chat through, you know, how does that link then through to perhaps a business's values, its strategy, how it runs? Do, do, you, do your personal values align as far as you can tell, even before an interview stage? And then an interview, I think really it's that idea, isn't it, of... of 
expectations on both sides and, and that fit on both sides. Um, so I think, you know, hopefully a, a student from here would feel comfortable to go out and either at least answer some preliminary questions around, are you aware of, you know, are you aware of your responsibilities in MRCVS? Would you be comfortable in drafting a clinical audit or taking part in one? Um, and I hope that most employers would feel comfortable if they were asked, will I be expected to write an audit? Or, you know, that's a, a question I feel comfortable to ask. And I think most of my employers in the past would have been happy to answer. So apart from more simulation, which you'll be able to tell us about in the future, any other plans for the future? What about around your research students, Marnie? Yeah, look, um, lots of plans as we've kind of touched on a little bit there in terms of the stuff that Emma's developing and, and also that, that Kate's doing too. Um, I think there's there's definitely more to be done with evidence-based voting medicine as well. You know, obviously QI being a very important part of the, the cycle of evidence-based voting medicine. So, you know, maybe even linking those things a bit better in, in, in the way that happens across the course. Um, but and I suppose from a research perspective, and, and Julie can come in here too, in terms of, I guess, making what we do have more of an impact too and, and making it fit for purpose for what the profession, what the need is out there for the profession. Um, like, for example, I know um, we've got a PhD student, Freya Rook, who's just done a really great um, project in conjunction with um, RCBS Knowledge, actually looking at the terminology around QI um, and, you know, I guess, helping to set some definitions that we can use in the veterinary profession, because I guess a lot of the definitions we've had previously have been medical field based. And actually, we need our own because we are different in lots of ways to them. So. I guess, yeah, just trying to make the research a bit more relevant. Julie, I don't know, you, you can talk more about your, your work, actually, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you've just hit the nail on the head, Marnie. It's it's about making that research very relevant to people in practice. Um, and I think increasingly we've got quite a lot of qualitative research going on um, where people were basically translating what people are saying and um helping to bridge that gap between the theory of what could and, and should happen, what happens on the ground and how we kind of how we can bridge that gap and, and for the sake of improvement. So so I think that's a really good point that Marnie's made. And also too that, you know, um, we've got more students starting too, you know, I've got a PhD student and two master's student that, that Kate's um, you know, working with moving forward. So you know, that they're both focused on QI in the curriculum, but also workplace-based um, studies as well. So, yeah, I, I just think that marry between research and teaching is really important and we'll continue to push for that, I think, because it helps to inform what we do in our curriculum and helps to make it as, um, as up-to-date and current as, and as useful, really, for, for everybody out there. That's, the, that's the, the point. We're trying to graduate people who can hit the ground running and know exactly... The landscape that they are needing to work within so that's that's only fair that's our job really we need to do that amazing i i can totally understand why you won the um, knowledge champion award you're doing so much which is well you're really at the forefront of this you're doing so much that's that's excellent and thank you so much for talking to me about it and hopefully might inspire some other teams to apply for a knowledge awards in the future hopefully it does hopefully because <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of great stuff going on out there or certainly you know the other educators we speak to there is some great stuff going on out there so just about coming forward and, and doing it yeah that's right so it can be educators and it can be people in practice it's anything that moves all this forward thank you thank you, thank you. thanks Pam
We hope you have enjoyed this recording. Please share it with your colleagues and friends. If you would like to find out more about quality improvement and access our free courses, examples and templates, please visit our quality improvement pages on our website at rcbsknowledge.org.